you that we are here, that we are in one piece, that our children are where they need to be. Um, I pray that you would help our hearts and minds calm and quiet a little bit so we can focus on you and hear from you. And I pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts and focus of our hearts please you because we love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and preface this by saying I'm a seasonal allergy sufferer and my voice is on its way out. So if I am sipping, it's so I can keep talking to you. So, okay, great. So the um, first thing we're going to do together is not actually going to involve my voice. It's going to involve yours. Are you ready? We're going to say our summary statement. Do you think you can do it? without the slide. Are we brave enough to give it a try or no? No? Okay, that's fine. Good for you. I have it. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Ready? One, two, three. Perfect. Y'all sound lovely. Okay, so here's the thing. We've been reading this together about every... Tuesday morning, right? And you might be asking yourself, we've read this again. Why? Um, let me, there's a couple of reasons. And I just want to kind of touch on them real quick before we get going. There's a couple of reasons why we're doing this. Because um, it helps us call to mind the fundamental truths of the book of Esther and Ruth. So when someone hears that you've been studying the books and they're like, oh, what's that about? You don't have to kind of like be like, well, well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. So it gives you something easy to fall back on. And also, we are creating muscle memory. Does anybody know it? Have, have you guys ever played with one of these? Yeah? Okay. Cat's cradle string, right? Um, my, somebody gave my daughter some last week, and they were like, Mom, look what we got. And I, we were waiting on the instruction. They gave us just these, not the instruction booklet. And they were like, this is so cool. And, you know, they're trying to, like, do it. And I was, they were like, have you seen these? And I was like, yeah, we played with these when I was kids. Like, um... And I pulled it out, and I was like, look, I made cat's whiskers. And then my brain went, I haven't touched one of these in 25 years. <laughs> Muscle memory, right? So we're, we're, um, we're repeating this every week to establish some mental muscle memory. Um, something for you to fall back on when someone asks you, why, like, what do you learn in Ruth and Esther? And also something for you to fall back on um, when you're in times of struggle, when you find yourself in middle places. Something for you to fall back on in moments when you're courageously um, called to courageously identify with the people of God or when you have opportunities to selflessly act on behalf of another. You're going to be able to bring this to mind and hopefully it will help you when you need to move to action. So we're creating some mental muscle memory. All right, so... On that note, we're diving into chapter 7 today, and my Bible is open to the book of Judges. That's not helpful. There we go. Now we're in the, now we're in the right place. Okay, so we're diving into chapter 7, just positioning our minds again. Where are we um, in the story? We are, um, we are in the moments of, we're in the, the part of the story with the banquets. Um, I think it's Interesting that for the whole, like, chapters one, two, three, and even really some of four, we're, like, covering years' worth 
of this story. And then five through eight, we're kind of like honing in on two days, really. And I think it's the author's way of helping us like slow down. And he's saying like, here's something really important. If you think about like, what if I um, told you about this um, poor boy who got a ticket to get on a ship where he meets this wealthy, beautiful woman and they form this connection and then they hit an iceberg. And then I spend the next 10 minutes telling you about the final hour-ish, I don't even remember how long that movie was, it was long, um, the final hour-ish of Titanic. So that's essentially what he's doing. He's like giving you this like quick overview and then he's slowing down and honing in on this like chunk of time because that's when the good stuff is happening. That's when the important stuff is happening. And the good stuff is, if you'll remember, um, the peripety. And it's this concept of sudden reversal. It's this upward trajectory that's happening. And in the book of Esther, it's happening in fits and starts. We're getting many little reversals that are adding up to one big deliverance. And last week we saw um, one of the first sudden reversals brought on by a sleepless night. Um, And Mordecai ends up being honored while Haman is kind of eating his words a little bit. Um, And this week we're seeing another reversal. And chapter 6, which is what we studied last week, ends with Haman's wife saying, you'll never succeed in your plans against Mordecai. Because he's a Jew, continuing to oppose him is going to be fatal. And that is a brilliant bit of foreshadowing from our author. Um, You'd think Haman might have taken the hint, admitted defeat, thrown in the towel, um, but he doesn't. So, chapter 7, and I will call this chapter a tale of two pleas, P-L-E-A-S, not please as in, well, I don't know, maybe they were saying please, so who knows, you could take it either way. Uh, Twice in this chapter, someone pleads for their life, and both pleas highlight a few realities that can be summed up in one short sentence, and it's this, this is their bottom line for today, we are destined for destruction and only Jesus can save us. So let's dive into the chapter. A tale of two pleas. All right, the first part of this chapter, um, Haman has, the, the words have just finished coming out of his wife's mouth about how maybe you should rethink this. And he is, is taken off to the second banquet. Um, and the king again asks Esther what her request is. Um, and he says, um, I'll give it to you even if it's half the kingdom. Now, he probably doesn't literally mean half the kingdom. This is just an indication that he is in a good and generous and pleasant mood. Um, so Esther presents her request in verse 3. She says, if I found favor with the king, it's always a good idea to, you know, suck up a little bit, right? Um, and if it pleases the king <clears throat> to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared, for my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. She uses the same language that we see in the edict. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Um, She says, spare my life and the lives of my people. She personalizes it, spare my life. Are we we're maybe to think that maybe the king still has some affection for her despite having not called her to him for however long it mentioned at the beginning of the book? 
um, spare my life and the lives of my people. So she aligns herself with her people very publicly. She's declaring herself as a Jew after having hidden it for a very long time and successfully hidden it, it would seem. Because the king says, who would do such a thing? And I don't know about you, but in my, little, my mind, I would be sitting there thinking, well, if you really want to know, you did. And also, but no, she doesn't point that out. Um, instead, so instead she says, and he says, who would do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And she points out Haman. This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And it's a fast, we don't catch this as much in the, in the English language, but in the original Hebrew, this is a fast staccato exchange. Real quick, real back and forth and fiery. Um, one commentator says that in the original Hebrew, it sounds like machine gun fire when you're saying these words out loud. Um, it immediately makes me think of um, that famous courtroom scene in A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise's character and Jack Nicholson are firing back and forth like, I want the truth, you can't handle it. Yeah, so this is the, like, the feeling of maybe not that level of like, anger, but like that quick fire. I'm sure you can think of another movie scene that you identify with that's like that quick fire back and forth. Um, so the king hears this, and, he, and Haman grows pale. He like blood drains from his face. And I think we've probably all experienced a situation where we've been called out on something, even if you have to go back to your childhood, like when your parents caught you in a lie or something, like suddenly the like dread and panic and realization overcomes you. And that's what's happening to Haman here. And the king jumps to his feet in a rage. And he goes out into the palace garden. So that she, this little like courtroom banquet area that they've called into. He goes out into the garden. And here's an interesting thing. Um, Haman stays, which by law, he should not have been alone with any member of the king's harem. In fact, there are some um, indications in ancient literature that being within seven paces of a member of the king's harem could have brought someone death. So Esther's plea for her life. Now we're moving on to Haman's plea. And he, king is off. Haman is staying. Um, maybe not a great decision, but also what else is his alternative? Like you can't really follow the king because the king is angry. Um, if he runs away, maybe that's an admission of get. Like he's in a tough spot. He chooses to stay when maybe he shouldn't have. Um, and he goes to beg for his life from Queen Esther, um, verse 8, it says, In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining. Okay, if you remember, in this kind of culture, people eat reclining. Di they dine reclining on their own couches, which were oftentimes like, decorated to um, match your rank and your position. So Queen Esther is reclined, dining. Haman comes over. The language is not super clear. It's probably not terribly likely he's actually assaulting her. He's probably like at her feet begging. Um, but Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, tradition likes to uh, say that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman, and that's why he's like fallen over. It's like <laughs> you can just imagine <laughs> like a little shove and whoop, there you are. Um, so Haman's there begging for his life. The king comes in, he sees this, and oh, there's his excuse. 
Maybe he's been wondering, what in the world am I going to do about this situation? I can't really, like, I got to deal with Haman, but how am I going to do it? Well, here's his excuse. If, the, if, if what we think to be true is true, that he shouldn't have been in there with a woman from the harem by himself, he shouldn't have been close to her, now the king has his excuse. And one of the eunuchs comes in and tells, um, points out to the king that Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. Let's think about that for a minute. 75 feet. That's a seven-story building. That's really tall. So it highlights the absurdity of Haman's evil, the height of his killing pole. Um, I'm sure there's a technical term, but it's, it's, it's leaving me. Anyways, so, um, so a hood is put over Haman's face, typically an indication that somebody is destined for death, um, and he is taken out and impaled on this pole that he has set up for Mordecai. Pretty sudden reserve, reversal. So we come to the end of chapter 7. Nothing that Haman had accomplished could save him. Nothing delivered him. And we see in this chapter that there were two pleas, Haman's plea to Esther and Esther's plea to the king. And it's interesting, we only see the outcome of one of these pleas. We see the outcome of Haman's. Esther's is left yet unanswered. And I think it's worth pausing here for a quick moment to note that the Jewish people at this point are still hanging out in that middle place. There have been a couple of great reversals, and yet they are still in the middle place. The Jewish people are still condemned. And this fade to black on what seems like a cliffhanger moment is a masterful technique by the author. I think it invites us to empathize with the Jewish people at this point in the story. I don't think it's hard for us to think of times where we've been in middle places waiting and it seems like everyone around us is getting the deliverance that they've asked for and we haven't yet. And we rejoice with those people. We rejoice with their reversals, but we wonder when is my moment of privity coming? Has God forgotten me? So Esther's made her case before the king. Haman's been executed and now we're waiting again. And as we wait until next week, I think this tale of two pleas highlights three realities we must face. And those realities, by way of application, come with a warning and an encouragement for us. So let's start with those realities. Reality number one, in God's providence and justice, human evil is always destined for destruction. Haman the Agagite was powerful, and he was wealthy, and he was honored. And he was also filled with insatiable pride and greed. His anger was out of control. He was murderous. Haman lived in a way that seemed right to him, but it was set against God. And when his sudden reversal came, nothing could save him. Not his wealth, not his power, not his position, not the respect of all the people around him. His achievements and his accolades were nothing in the end. Um, we're in the season of Lent. And the season of Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. And if you've ever been to an Ash Wednesday service, they confer the ashes on your forehead. And when they do, they tell you, um, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And it's a reminder, we are destined for death and nothing that we can do can save us. Romans tells us this, that because of one man's sin, evils entered the world and all of humanity is subject to God's divine, righteous judgment. Um, Paul puts it, oh, nope, guess not. 
didn't put a slide in there. Paul puts it this way. He says, when Adam sinned, this is in chapter five, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. Um, author Karen Jibbs puts it this way. Fallen human nature set itself against God in the Garden of Eden and was condemned to death by God. That fallen nature is embodied in the, in the book of Esther as the Agagite nature of Haman, but it's the universal condition of all who have not been reconciled to God in Christ. So that brings us to our second reality. We have experienced a great reversal. We were destined for death because of that sin nature we just talked about. But Jesus stepped into human history. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we were destined to die. And he stands before the king advocating for us. And our only hope is to align ourselves with him. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians puts it this way, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ, everyone who's aligning with Christ, will be given new life. So, reality number three, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. It is tempting for us to look out into the world and believe that our enemy are those who despise us as believers, um, who seem like they're set against us. But the reality is our neighbors are not our ultimate enemy. They are not our true enemy. In Ephesians, again, the Apostle Paul tells us um, that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Satan is our enemy. He is out to, as the edict says, kill, slaughter, and annihilate us through the power of sin. And he's tricky, and he's deceptive, and he makes sin look good. Think about Haman. He made it look good. Powerful, wealthy. And here's the reality. When we're tempted to think our enemy are our neighbors, our real enemy is out for our neighbors too. So in light of these realities, I think Haman's plea offers us a warning and Esther's plea offers us encouragement. So first, the warning, be on your guard. Be on your guard. The Apostle Peter says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Be careful of becoming like Haman. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we are not destined for ultimate death anymore. But um, Satan would still like to take us out. So we think, easy, I haven't plotted murder against anyone recently. Good for you. I'm proud of you. I hope that stays true. Um, but recall Jesus' words in Matthew when he equates being angry with being subject to the same judgment as murdering. Um, in that section, Jesus is getting at the root of murder. I think people rarely wake up one day and think, hmm, I have nothing better to do. I think I might kill someone today. That's stirred and festered in them for a while. So let's use Haman as an example and let's trace back the root of his sin. He starts with pride. And then his pride is affronted. 
Mordecai won't bow down to him. So he gets angry. And then he indulges his anger. He keeps, it simmers. He gets angrier and angry and angrier. And it develops into contempt, that disregard for another person. It becomes very easy to dehumanize another person when you treat them or view them with contempt. So pride affronted becomes anger. Anger indulged becomes contempt. And contempt embraced became attempted murder. Sin allowed to take root and grow yields a harvest of destruction. So what should our response be to sin? Be on your guard. Don't become complacent. Um, One of my favorite podcasters, Annie F. Downs, I heard her recently in a podcast say, I wish someone could convince me there's a sin available that I wouldn't pursue. Meaning, not that she's like out there sinning all the time, but in the context of the conversation, she was saying, I know myself, I know my tendency apart from Jesus to pursue sinful things. And I think that's a good mindset for all of us have. Um, Put it another way, left unto my own devices, there is no sin I cannot commit. Your enemy, Satan, would love nothing more than to render you ineffective in this world through the power of sin taking root in your life. So root it out. Don't coddle it. Don't nurse it. Don't allow it to grow. If you were in sermon um, a couple years ago, a year ago, I don't know, time's a black hole. Um, Chris Payne um, used the example of like having a python that's like cute when it's little. I know I have a little snake and then it grows bigger and it eventually kills you. Okay, sin, don't. Let it grow, okay? Let's get rid of it, lest it grows into a monster that destroys us. So we will never be sinless, but as the prophet Joel says, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, let us always be people that are turning back to Jesus with broken hearts. The encouragement. Now for the happy part. When we align our identities with Jesus, God invites us to join the work he's doing in the world. Our neighbors have an enemy too. We said that. And their only hope for rescue is also Jesus. Our alignment with Jesus does our neighbors no good when we keep it to ourselves. So considering Esther's progression, she aligns with the people of God in her heart, makes the decision that she is going to go before the king, And then she shares it with those close to her. She tells Mordecai to call the Jews. She tells her, she says she's going to fast with her maids. So I assume those, I assume that to mean the women who are around her in the harem. And then she declares herself in front of the king. We do not step into lives of influence until we step out of hiding. Haman sought to keep his life and he lost it. Esther courageously and willingly put her life on the line and saved not only her life, but the lives of her people. So we are to be looking for ways in which we can align ourselves with Jesus for the benefit of our neighbors as they wage war against an enemy they might not even realize they're fighting yet. And while we do that, we can remember that the story does not end in ashes and ruin. We talked about that in the intro. So, bottom line today is that we are destined for destruction and only Jesus can save us. So we turn to him to plead our case before the king. And once we've aligned ourselves with Jesus, we rely on his strength to power our resistance of the enemy. 
and we accept his invitation to step out of hiding and to join him in the work that he's doing in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for our great reversal. Thank you for Jesus. I pray that we can live with Esther's courage to come out of hiding and align ourselves with you for the benefit of the people around us. And I pray that you would give us the strength and the power to resist sin that wants to take root in our lives, to dig it out um, so that our lives can honor you and benefit those that are around us. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.